I want you to take your Bible, turn to, guess what? First Peter, we're going to be in chapter 3, and before we get going, there's a couple of things I just kind of want to say. I said this in the first service. I, we, you have no idea how blessed we are uh, to have somebody like Justin Stroop who can do a fantastic job with our students, who can stand up and lead worship and do a great job with that, who can preach, who can handle hospitality, who can build tables, um, and the best thing about him is his wife is awesome. Does that sound good? Man, he does a great job. So y'all, thank you, Justin, for all you do, and uh, appreciate him. Uh, and uh, I also want to celebrate something else. Guys, I don't know if you noticed, our church is growing, things are changing, thing, expansions are happening, and with that causes an extra measure of administration and things that we need to put in place. Um, and I just kind of want to fill you in on something, and I was going to uh, talk to you about this last week, but it just was not appropriate to do so. Uh, our children's minister, Alexis Head, joined us in October and is doing a fantastic job leading children's ministry. We're so, you have no idea how blessed we're, have, we're, we're here. You have no idea how blessed we are to have her. She served in a children's ministry staff in Texas with about four or 5,000 people and is just doing a fantastic job with that. And we have added to her job description, she is now in charge of all systems and administration here at our church. And so uh, you pray for her, uh, you go and encourage her. Because now she has to keep me on track, is basically her job. And if you know me well, that is challenging. Um, and I married a therapist for that reason. Um, and so uh, you, uh, you pray for her and encourage her. I was going to say this na- last week, but she had a nasty spill. She was walking down the street and hit her face or something like that. And uh, I didn't want you to think that was part of the job description. So, uh, so encourage her on that. And uh, Justin also has added responsibility. He's in charge of all building maintenance now. And I tell you that is because if you have a problem or see something in the building, go tell him. Uh, don't tell me anymore. Does that sound good? Uh, guys, let's jump into First Peter. Now, we have been in this text for quite some time. And um, some of you are like, oh, we're in First Peter again. And some of you are like, oh, we're in First Peter again. Well, that's me. And I just want to tell you, this is going to be the norm here at our church, and here's why. Is that we can do a lot of series on marriage, which we will do, on finance, which we will do, on parenting, on stress, you can pick it, but here's the deal. If you don't know God's Word, there'll be no application to those things. And when you're invested and you understand the Bible, you can take these truths that we draw out of that each week and place it in your marriage, place it in your work environment, place it in your stress. You follow what I'm saying here? So we're going we're gonna to saturate ourselves into every aspect of this text until it's done. So it may be in August before we're done, but um, guys, the richness of the Word of God is something we don't want to skim over. Y'all feel me on that? And so this morning, we're going to be in verse 18 of chapter 3. Now, I say this every week, and I'm going to catch you up a little bit, but First Peter was written by whom? Okay, let's, let's say that a little louder, okay? First Peter was written by whom? Peter. What was his first name? About half of you. Okay, we got to do a better job this morning, or at least I do. Simon Peter, he was Jesus' number one disciple, and what I mean by that, he was the oldest guy. He was the guy that led the disciples after Jesus resurrected and ascended into heaven. He was the guy that had foot and mouth disease. He said the things that he shouldn't say. He was blue collar. He was a fisherman. He was rough and tumble and tough. And that's why I think we relate to him so well. He has so many things going for him, but many times he's known as the guy who messed up. He denied Jesus three times, but you can't forget this. In the last chapter, chapter 21 of the Gospel of John, Jesus reinstates Peter, and Peter becomes the leader of the disciples. And in the second chapter of Acts, 
and this is a little church history, he stands up in the middle of Jerusalem, he preaches the gospel, this guy who had been broken, reinstated, this guy who was uneducated but used mightily and has two books in scripture, this guy who had all these things going wrong did something right, 5,000 men came to know Christ not including women and children. I say all that to say this, is that regardless of your background, your experiences, your problems, your circumstance, your suffering, your issues, your sin, Jesus wants to use you. Jesus has plan and purpose for you. Jesus has something for you. Now here's the problem. We have to be willing to submit to him. And so this morning we come to 1 Peter chapter 3. The book is written to a group of people called exiles. These aren't, like I've said before, people have been kicked out of their country. These are people who understand that their citizenship is not here on earth but in heaven. If you're a believer, your citizenship is not here. That's why it's hard. That's why it feels like you're swimming upstream spiritually because you're not home. You're in the guest house. You're going to get there. And so as he navigates through what the gospel is and how to live out the gospel, the whole theme has been how to fortify your faith. And so far, we have encountered so many passages of Scripture dealing with this fortification. In the last two or three weeks, we've dealt with how to be a blessing when people revile us. And what we learned two or three weeks ago is that you are blessed to bless others. Regardless if they're evil to you, regardless if they gossip about you, you still have to bless. That's your calling. That's hard to do, and we talked about the stress and anxiety that accompanies with that last week. This week, we talk about how to persevere and have the strength to be that blessing. How do we overcome the suffering? The best way I can phrase it is, how do you suffer well? You with me on that? That doesn't make sense, does it? Because that doesn't go with our vocabulary. That's not in our language. Suffering well. We're supposed to be upset. We're supposed to be hurt. 100% of the human beings ever born, including Jesus Christ, suffered. Christian or not, you're going to suffer. How do you suffer for the glory of God? How do you suffer well? Let Let me rephrase it. Where do we draw strength in suffering specifically? This past uh, summer, my family and I went to St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, as we were there, we toured the old city. If you've ever been there, it's my first trip there. It was the oldest permanent settlement in the United States, originally settled by Spain. And while they were there, they built a huge fortification. And this fortification, if you've ever been there, sits right on the harbor there. And as you stand on its walls that are about 10 feet thick, you look over the ocean, and to the left, there was once a, once a swamp there, and to the right, there was the city. And so anybody who wanted to come into the city and conquer it, they had to go through the harbor past the fortification or through the swamp. It was an intimidating fortification. And what's interesting about this specific fort, it was never taken by force. Isn't that interesting? It, it, you know, it did change hands because Spain owned Florida, then England owned Florida, and now the United States, and it was used for a plethora of things, but no one was able ever to take it. Now, the reason was is that not that it was designed so great, not because it had so many incredible warriors or its cannons were bigger than anybody else. It's that the architecture involved was quite fascinating. When the settlers came or the colonists came to the New World, they had to use the materials that were available here, right? Whether it be granite, whether it be uh, mortar, whether it be clay, whether it be wood, whatever it may be. And in Florida... There's a type of material, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, called coquinea. 
And this material is basically, I'm not going to say it again because I'm going to mess it up, but this material is basically ground up shells made into some form of mortar that act as kind of like bricks. Does that make sense? And so what they did is they took this fortress, they took this material, they made walls that were 10 feet thick. The Spanish knew about this material, but there was so much there on the Florida coast is they put it in part of this fortification. And they weren't really sure what was going to happen when somebody shot cannonballs. Their hope was it was going to be able to last and their, their, their best expectation was that the cannonball would hit it and maybe the shells would go everywhere, but they'd be able to fight off the invaders. Make sense so far? What happened was fascinating. Is that the ships drove into the harbor, the armies came, and they lined up their cannons on this fortification, they lit the fuse, and boom, off it went. The cannonball hit the side of the fort, and because it was such a porous substance, it absorbed all the energy of the cannonball, and the cannon bounced right off. Isn't that cool? The worst thing that happens is the cannonball sunk about a couple of inches in and then just fell back onto the ground. Wouldn't it be great that when you and I have darts shot at us or cannonballs shot at us, it would just bounce right off? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great that in the midst of our suffering, we suffer so well that it doesn't affect us at all? How do we develop that type of fortification? Where does it come from? How do we suffer well from that perspective? Well, the answer is just real simply, and this is the big idea I want you to remember the entire time and maybe take this throughout the week. The more Jesus you have, the more peace you have. More Jesus equals more peace. Now, we're going to leave that on the screen for a moment because I really want you to understand what that means. More Jesus, let's deal with it from a salvation perspective, okay? So understand that some of you are here this morning, you've never come into a relationship with Christ. You've talked about God, you've maybe said the blessing when you were four years old, you learned it in preschool, wh whatever it may be for you. But to know Jesus means there is a gospel understanding of where you come into a relationship with Jesus and he radically transitions your life from death to life, spiritually speaking. In order to go to heaven, you have to have that happen. When you recognize you can't work hard enough, you aren't good enough, and someone has to pay the price for your sins, that person's Jesus. And once he comes into your life, that's all the Jesus you're ever going to need, and guess what? That's all the Jesus you're ever going to get. You can't get more of him. So, Chip, why did you put more Jesus equals more peace? Here's why. The idea in the language here is as you grow more in your relationship with Christ, the more peace you're going to have. Make sense? It's there. It's there for you to take advantage of if you know Christ. But as you grow in your relationship with Christ... There will be more peace. Doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. Doesn't mean you're not going to grieve. Doesn't mean the circumstances are not going to go ebb and flow with your life. But the more you're growing, the more peace you're going to have. So, how do we get that peace? What are those steps to growth? Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, I want to warn you before we jump off in this text. Verse 19 and 20, you're probably going to go ahead and read ahead if you have a copy of God's Word or an iPhone or whatever you're reading are some of the most difficult passages of Scripture to interpret in the entirety of the New Testament. It's connected with Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 6, which are some of the most difficult passages of Scripture to interpret in the Old Testament. Now, if time allows, we're going to try to attack both of those, okay? So we're going to be really ambitious this morning, but we're at least going to deal with chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. So I'm going to read over it, and you're going to go, what does that mean, Pastor? We're going to come back and give it to you, so just hang tight. But let's notice what happens here. Verse 18, get this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with all angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now, let's tear this apart here. We're going to have a little fun. The first step here in drawing strength to suffer well, to have more Jesus in order to have more peace, is simply this. You have to understand that Christ has brought you to God. Now, that's a duh moment for many of you that have been in church your entire life, right? And hopefully you've paid attention here long enough to know that you didn't bring yourself to God, that it wasn't by your own uh, abilities, it was all Jesus. But it's something that we need to remind ourselves of as we deal with the sufferings that we deal with day in and day out. Let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, go to verse 18. We're going to put this on the screen, I'm going to leave it there, and we're just going to tear this apart for a moment. And let's just, let's chew on every piece. Y'all with me on that? Notice what it says first. For Christ also suffered once. Now, I want you to understand this. What he's saying here, Jesus suffered. Put that in your back pocket and remember it for a moment. 100% of the people, I said this before, who've ever been born, suffer. That means you're not void. You can't escape it. What we have is a God who suffers and who suffered. Does that make sense? This is a choice that he made. He has the ability to empathize and sympathize with your suffering because he experienced it too. But move a little forward, move past that, and notice what it says, it continues to say. For Christ also suffered once for sins. There was a reason for his sufferings, and that was for our sins. Now, you've heard this before. We just celebrated Easter. We celebrate that every week. But the crucifixion was the embodiment and the picture of Jesus suffering for the sins of all those who know him and are going to know him. It's your ticket to heaven. Now, it's important for us for a moment to just dwell here because I want you to think about the magnitude of that statement. All of us are jacked up. Would you agree on that? Let's just everybody, let's pause for time out. When I say all of us are jacked up, I want 100% of us to say yes at the same time because I want you to affirm that about yourself. If you don't know that, you're about to affirm it, okay? You ready? All of us are jacked up. Yes, good. I think Scott Dakin was the only one that didn't say something, so pray for him. Now, here's the thing. What I want you to get here for a moment is the magnitude of that statement, the magnitude of what Christ is doing. Take yourself back to the day before Jesus was crucified. He's sitting in the upper room with all of his disciples, and they're having the Last Supper. Right before they have dinner together, Jesus brings them in. He sits them in the circle. There's all 12 of the disciples, and he puts a cloth around his waist, and he washes each one of them's feet. It was a symbol of servanthood, and it was the job of a slave. But what he's teaching the church, what he's teaching those disciples is our job is to serve others. Make sense? So he does that. Picture this. First one he comes to, just, just imagine for a moment, is Peter. He's the guy that wrote this book. The next day, Peter does not, denies Christ three times. Even curses the point that he knows Jesus, so he wouldn't be accused as one of his friends. Jesus knows this. 
Next person he comes to is Thomas, one of my favorite disciples, who came to the rest of the disciples after Jesus resurrected from the dead. He said, until I put my finger in the wound in his side and the nail prints in his hand, I will not believe he's alive. He knew Thomas was going to doubt. He continues to wash the feet and he comes to the worst of them all. He comes to Judas, right? Judas is the guy that betrayed him. Judas is the guy who signed his death warrant. But yet he washed his feet. Why do we say all this? Is it when we read that verse, for Christ also suffered once for our sins, we have to understand that he suffered for Judas. Now, whether Judas knew him or not, I don't know. But he suffered for Peter. And in the depths of our own depravity, he suffers for you, for me. Make sense? Now, read a little further on this. Notice what happens here. For Christ suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. People die for people all the time. I would gladly lay myself in front of a semi-truck for my family. You probably would do the same thing. People leave and go to overseas and they fight for their country. But Jesus died for Judas. Jesus died for the Judas and you. You get that? There is power in that. And the purpose of that suffering goes on a little further in verse 18. And it says, to bring you to God. I came to Jesus as a young kid. Like many of you in this room, I grew up in a very rural Baptist church. And I went to Sunday school and I sat down with Miss Davis. Miss Davis was my Sunday school teacher when I was eight years old. And she had everybody in the class, all four of us. That's how many people were in my Sunday school classroom. If you ever think you're in a small, small group or in a small church, grow up with me, all right? Everybody knew everybody, everybody knew everybody's business, and everybody knew everybody's business of the people who knew your business. Make sense? Couldn't get away with anything. Sitting in that little small Sunday school classroom, I sat there, and she taught us John 3.16. Y'all know the verse, right? If at least you've seen somebody hold it up at an NFL football game. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have everlasting life. Now, I knew that verse. I just learned that verse. God had been working in my heart, and I told my mom and dad, I think it's time for me to be baptized, which is code in church worlds. I need Jesus, right? So I said, well, we're going to sit you in front of the pastor. I sat down with Dr. Carlisle Driggers. He's the man that baptized me. Sitting in this little nasty little office, and he says, Chip, do you know John 3.16? I said, yes, I know it. I pass. I go to heaven. I said, for God's love of the world, he gave us only begotten son. I said, the King James Version, you know, it was great, so obviously it was right. You know what I mean? I said, all that stuff. He says, no, it doesn't. And I was like, yes, it does. Miss Davis said, I read it in my Bible. He said, nope. He said, for God so loved Chip. That's what that means. And what we have to recognize is when we read those few verses there, is that God so loved, and I want you to insert your name. That's the depths of his devotion for your salvation. And when we choose to draw strength from Christ, as we deal with suffering, as we have our fortification, we have to understand that the sustainability and the stability of our faith is not in our performance, but in the power of Jesus. You get that? You need to write that down if you can't remember. The sustainability and the stability of your salvation is not in your performance, but is in the power of Christ. Because, we go back to verse 1, or verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. For the unrighteous, I mean for the righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us to God. And when man chose death, it says this. He was put to death in the body, 
God chose life, but made alive in the Spirit. Do you see that? Your strength begins with your confession that you need Christ, with your submission. And as the believer who chooses to be gospel-centered, your strength begins when you look at the sustainability of your faith, not in how well you perform, but in how powerful your God is, that he stabilizes you. You get that? You have a God that stabilizes you, regardless of the sufferings, regardless of anything. I hate traveling. I used to think it was one of the most glamorous things ever. And so when I was younger, uh, even, even as newlyweds, Sarah Beth and I would travel all over the place. We'd catch a plane and go here. We'd try to go have this experience. We would go see that. I mean, we have done some stupid, stupid things. It was a lot of fun, though, right, babe? And we, got on a, we got on an airboat in the middle of the swamp in Louisiana with a guy we didn't know. He could have pushed us over and let the alligators eat us, and nobody would have known. But it was so cool. And so we're riding around out there. I mean, all those types of experiences and now, as I'm older, I don't know if I'm a curmudgeon or what, but I don't want to go anywhere. I want to stay home. I want to watch TV. I want to be with my family. But when I do have to travel, you know, the thing that empowers me to get back home is the experiences of being home again, right? The thing that empowers us is the knowledge that we have a home, even though we be exiles. That Christ is sustaining us. Our strength comes from the fact that Christ has brought us to God. Now, let's, let's deal with the difficulty here. Notice what happens next. Verse 19. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, if, you're, if you've checked out for a moment, wake back up. I want you to notice what this is saying here. I want to give you a little history. In Genesis chapter 6, Noah and the ark... You've heard the story before. God condemned the world because man was evil. So he flooded the world and he let eight people live. Noah and his wife, their sons and their wives, they got into the ark. Animals came in two by two. It was a smelly place. 40, you, you get what I'm saying, right? All that was happening. So I want you to understand what he's beginning to communicate at this moment. Many people, there's, there's, there's several interpretations. One of them's right. Two of them may be right. I'm going to pick one and tell you what I think, but I'm going to tell you what's not right. You follow that so far? What's not right is this. Some people will say, well, Jesus, after he rose from the dead, went to hell, proclaimed the gospel, and gave people the opportunity to know Jesus. Well, that's not right. Here's why. The Bible's very clear. Once you die, you have no more chances. That's why it's important not to wait till you're on your deathbed, because you don't know when that's going to be, right? You don't know when. If you can figure that out, please let me know. We'll box it up and put it on Shark Tank. We'll be millionaires, right? Here's the deal. Jesus didn't go to hell and proclaim the gospel to people so that they could come to know Christ. Nor, now I want you to notice what happens at the very end of verse 21 here. Or very, very, verse 20, it says, In the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. Basically, he's saying those people who died in the flood are in some type of purgatory, and Jesus has given them the opportunity to go to heaven. That's not biblical either. Here's what I think is going on here. I believe that in those moments when Jesus, it says this, in verse 19, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. He went to hell. He stood at its gates, and he says this. Y'all ready for this? You lose. He went to the most evil place with the most evil people who thought that they claimed victory through his crucifixion, and he stood up and said, I'm alive. 
victory's mine, you lose. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, it talks about angels who were kicked out of heaven, who married men and had children, married women and had children, and these people were the most evil that they could be. And he stands in front of them. That's why he talks about Noah. He stands in front of them and says, The most evil thing ever, you lose. Now, why do we say this? Christ won an overwhelming victory. And in our suffering, we draw strength from the fact that regardless of how much we lose, he wins. You get that? And so as you stand tomorrow in the middle of your stress, as you stand this afternoon in the middle of your circumstance, you say, this is awful, it feels like hell, but Christ won. He stood at the gates of hell and says, I have overcome it all. You lose. What do you need to proclaim that to in your life? You you feel me on that? What addiction? What area of grief? What problem do you have that you need to look in the eye and say, because Jesus died and rose from the dead, evil, you lose. It was a gloating moment for our king and a powerful example for us. Evil loses. Because you're one of his kids, you get to go down on the victory lap. Isn't that good? We draw strength from that. We draw strength from the fact that Jesus wins, and so do we. Verse 21. Actually, we're going to start in verse 20, the last sentence. In it, only a few people, eight all, were saved through water. Now, he's talking about the flood here in Genesis chapter 6. When God condemned the planet, everyone died. But eight people lived. Does that make sense? So it wasn't total eradication of the human species. And what he's saying here is that those eight people entered through the ark and survived. And because God put punishment on the planet through the flood, condemnation, or his justification and anger, his wrath, were met. Therefore, the eight people were saved. Does that make sense so far? That's a lot right there, all right? I know this. Basically, what I'm trying to get at is, through the flood and through the ark, Noah and his family survived. And what he's saying here, if we go down to verse 21, read a little further here, he makes this statement. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Now, baptism doesn't save you. That's not what it's saying here. Baptism is a symbol. Of an, it's an outward expression of an inward change. Okay? The ark didn't save Noah and his family. God did. Does that make sense? Now read a little further. And this water symbolizes baptism and now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What that means is, the word baptism means, is the Greek word baptismo. It means that you are immersed into Jesus when you come to know Jesus. You become part of him, part of his body. And when we baptize someone, it's a symbol of what's happened to them spiritually speaking. They were dead, and they go into Jesus, they come out alive. They are immersed into the king. Does that make sense? Everybody got that? Now, here's why this is important for us. It's a representation that all condemnation and judgment have been eradicated in our lives. And we draw strength, and we are fortified because we know that we're not condemned. Romans 8.1, my favorite verse in Scripture, says there is no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this is important for you and for me because many times as we try to navigate through life and we're trying to overcome certain problems and issues, we may come out and say, well, I must have done something wrong and God is judging me. Have you all ever thought that before? God is punishing me. I'm being condemned. I've done something wrong. Or maybe logically we'll say, because I've done something wrong in my past, God's going to take it out on my kids. Any of y'all ever had that thought? Lord, I have. Well, I've prayed against that thought before. Here's truth. Through Jesus, and when you come to know him, all judgment and all condemnation have been eradicated. And baptism symbolizes that. All of it is gone. It's been abolished. It's been taken care of. And we draw strength knowing we're not judged anymore. We're not condemned anymore. Romans 5, 8, I love this. It says this. We're going to try to throw it up on the screen really fast, see if they can do it. There you go. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is no condemnation because of that death and resurrection. You're not judged anymore. Last thing, I'm running out of time. I love the 11 o'clock service because we go over. And we could, honestly, I could go this for an hour more, man. I want to be sensitive to you. Let's go verse 20 again, 21 again, pick up the last sentence. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Here's the deal. We draw strength from the reality and from the truth that Jesus is in control. When you place yourself in the acknowledgement that Jesus is sovereign, there is an incredible strength and comfort drawn from that. We come to this place and say, Jesus, you've got this. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to serve you. But at the end, Jesus, you've got this. There's a peace that transcends all understanding there. Go back to what it says here. Go to verse 21. It says, notice what happens. Verse 22 who has gone into heaven, he's at God's right hand, and look what's underneath him. Angels, authorities, and powers all submit to him. That means those that are heavenly, those who are in control, and those who have power over you have to submit to Jesus. I love what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, right before he ascended into heaven. He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to whom? Jesus. He's in control. So here's my question. Do you recognize his control in your life? Do you recognize he is boss, he is Lord? Do you recognize that his purposes are going to be fulfilled? Do you draw strength from the fact that we serve a God that not only died for the unrighteous, sustains those unrighteous in their salvation, doesn't condemn them anymore or judge them anymore, has abolished all that, and he's still madly in love with his creation. That he's in control. Listen to me. Life is hard. We can all affirm that, right? And we mess up a lot. Would we all agree on that? But there is a constant, sovereign creator that keeps us in step with himself. Why? Because verse 22 is there. He is sitting at the right hand of God. And angels, authorities, and powers are all in submission to him. 
Are you in submission to him? Are we as a church in submission to him? So how do we take our next step? What do we do after learning all this stuff? Because I think it's important that we take specific application. Are y'all with me on that? So I'm going to give you four steps to take. Because this is heavy this morning. This is a lot to talk through. and It's gone really fast, and so you might have questions afterwards. But here's, 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 here's what we're going to draw from this to make specific application. Y'all with me on that? Step one, and this isn't for everybody, but in order to draw strength, some of you got to take this step, and it's simply this, coming to a saving relationship with Jesus. What I mean by that is we're not playing around with our faith anymore. Is that we move from head knowledge to heart knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, and we ask him to come into our life. We're not simply now lay me down to sleep, Christians. We're full-fledged on fire for the Lord, saved, sanctified, and going to be glorified one day believers. You got that? It's that we acknowledge that we can't do this, that we are sinners, and Christ needs to save us. And if you've never taken that step of faith before, on the Connect card that you were given, there's a box at the very top that says, Today I surrender my life to Christ. Some of you got to do that. And listen to me, until you do that, you aren't going to heaven. I'm just going to be as honest as I can be. Why do I say that? Verse 18's there. Go back to verse 18. What does it say? It says, Christ died for our sins. For you and I, the unrighteous, he was righteous, and he's bringing us to God. Here's the deal. Have he, has he escorted you to the king yet? You've got to ask him to come into your life. That's step one. Next step, number two, is simply this. Be baptized. Be baptized. Publicly profess your inward belief. And what I mean by that is some of you have never taken a step of baptism. You're like, I just don't feel comfortable doing that. It's, it's not for me. Or, or the worst excuse I've ever had, heard was simply this. I've got to clean myself up first and get everything right before I publicly profess. Hey, listen to me. <laughs> Being uncomfortable means you're growing, number one. Number two, you need to take a step of faith. Why? Because Jesus said to. That's all you need, right? And number three, you are never going to clean yourself up enough. Ever. Ever be baptized. Make it public, people. Take that step of faith. And if that's you this morning, the second box on that connect card says today, I need to get baptized. Third thing, next step number three is you need to connect. You need to connect with people who are on this journey. You need to get in the body of Christ. The way I want to challenge you to do that is you need to be in a life group. You can sign up on the connect card. You can sign up at the kiosk. You can sign up on the River Hills Church app, on the website, or you can tell a friend. Whatever you want to do, okay? But you need to get with other people who are on this journey to get encouragement from them. If you're a lady here today, I'm going to give you a really simple one. At 7 o'clock Wednesday night, be here for Propel Women's Ministries. Does that sound good? It'll be awkward for a moment, but there are women there that love you, that want you to bring you in and embrace you and being a part of this fellowship so you can grow spiritually. Does that sound good to y'all? If you're a student, be at Merge tonight at 6 o'clock. If you're a dude, you need to sign up and get over yourself. That's just how the best way I can say it to a man. Here's the thing. Take that step of faith. Number four, step number four is simply this, choose to obey. Choose to obey. This is the hard step. To grow spiritually, you've got to be in the Word, you've got to be in prayer, and you've got to make doing the right thing a practice. And there's some place of disobedience in every one of our lives, and we need to take a step out of that disobedience. What is that for you? How do you choose to obey? I was growing up, I went to an old-timey doctor. And what I mean by old-timey doctor is you didn't want to go. Y'all know what I'm talking about? 
because every time you went to this doctor, they would give you a shot. Did any of y'all grow up like that? I mean, you would not act like you're sick. I mean, nowadays you're like, I'm sick. I can lay out for a week, and doctors don't even give you medicine anymore. They'll take your copay and charge your insurance and ask for 100 bucks, but they're like, you're just going to let it run its course. When I was growing up, they'd give you a bottle of pink medicine and a shot and say, go back to school tomorrow. Y'all remember that? Oh, my goodness. In the, in the ur- there was no urgent care. And the pediatrician was like an hour away because I lived in the sticks. So I had to go to Dr. Acre, and he was like the urgent care. And you never wanted to go to Dr. Acre. I'm looking at you students. You never wanted to go there because you knew if you went to Dr. Acre, you're getting a shot. Now, there was Dr. Inslin on the other side of town who was a little further away, but he used the small needles. Dr. Acre used daggers. It was unbelievable. And they would say, you know, bend over. Wham! I mean, it's like the guy got a running start just as hard as he could. Screaming, crying, bruising, but the next day you felt better because you knew that in that shot was the medicine that you needed to get better. Why do I tell you that story? Here's the deal. Get this. If you want to have more peace, you got to have more Jesus. And more Jesus means repentance, but you got to acknowledge, hey, I am messed up, and it's painful for me to say I'm not perfect. It's painful for me to say i got to face my fears. It's painful for me to say I need more help. It's painful for me to say these things. But hear me on this. Once you do, there's healing. Once you do, he splits the sea and brings you to himself. You get this? More Jesus. It's more peace. For the Christian here today, and you're apathetic in your faith, listen to me. No pain, no gain. It's time to get painful. It's time to experience healing. For the person here today who doesn't know Christ, and you don't want to step beyond your pride, today's the day where you got to go, hey, I need to leave this behind, and I need to step into a Savior. For those of us here today who are doing our best to follow and obey the Lord, understand this. The greatest way to interpret and apply the Word is through suffering. And I pray for me and for you that we have the tenacity and the spiritual zeal to suffer well and have more Jesus and therefore what? Have more what, church? Peace. Did you have that peace this morning? Connect card you filled out, I played, you checked off one of those boxes. We'll collect those in a few moments. But here's the deal. I'm going to be standing over here to my left, to your right. If you need prayer, if you need Jesus, if you need something, I'll be here and I'll pray with you. But take that step of faith in order to know more of Jesus so that you have more of his peace. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We ask God very specifically that in these moments that you would demonstrate yourself, demonstrate your glory, demonstrate your power, demonstrate your majesty, demonstrate your grace. And I pray, God, that you would just speak deep into our souls and allow us to overwhelmingly picture what it means to follow wholeheartedly after you. And that, God, that we would know you and grow in you, that we would experience you, that we're not condemned anymore. You've abolished that judgment. You've proclaimed to evil, I win! And so, God, we feel that this morning. And we ask, God, that we stand in the midst of being close to you, knowing you're in control. We want to know you so that we can know peace. In Jesus' name we pray.